We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The Rock Pile Report with Buffalo Bills season ticket holder, Drew Gear. Be aggressive. You have literally nothing to lose. You're a borderline football team. If I don't keep laughing about this stuff, my teeth are going to turn around and devour my brain. The Bills make me want to... And Oliver comes in at 281 can play inside, can play the end, and then if he needed, could play outside linebacker. He's that fast. And yesterday at this Pro Day, Jane does interview This guy blew the, the doors off at the Pro Day. This guy is your big boom player in this draft. This yeah. is the guy that everyone originally said end of the first round because who knows, I don't know where he fits. And now I'm here in top ten. <laughs> Forget top ten. Top five. Welcome everybody to another edition of the Rockpile Report Podcast. I am your host, Bill season ticket holder, Drew Gear. That is my producer, Chris Krueger, and that was Peter Schrager talking about defensive tackle prospect Ed Oliver. Yeah, dude, we got Solak tonight to cover the defensive line. We still have schedule stuff to get to. I got I to gotta start with this because this is completely off topic, and it irritated me to no end today, and people should hear your opinion on this. So I work in the South Towns. What do the South Towns have? It's very hilly in the South Towns. So to go to my work, you got to take a right off or left off of 16. You go up a steady incline, hit some railroad tracks, hill right there over the tracks. Boom, you're right right where I work. And then if you want to keep going past where I work, guess what? Another hill to go up. So when it rains, all of the water comes down from the hill, and because of poor drainage, just pools up in our parking lot. And finally, the county is going to fix it. They've been fixing it for two weeks. Tore up the road, everything. So today, I am at work, and it's about 45 minutes before lunch, and I have to go make a deposit at the first porcelain bank of Erie County. (laughs) So I, I go in the bathroom, I do my biz, and then I get up to flush, and it doesn't flush. And we've had that. We've I've had it before where the toilet flushes and it just consistently runs for two minutes. And I just stand there like, is it going to end? And then it ends. So I just, at this point, I'm like, okay, it's just something's wrong with the toilet. I will go tell our GM. So now I go to the sink, wash my hands, no water. 
And I go, they, the water has to be off because there's something out. And then I go to the, to my GM and he's on the phone. So I don't, I don't bother him. And I go back out to the shop. I talk to two other guys. I go, Hey, do you guys know the water's off? They go, oh yeah, water's off. Why didn't anybody tell me? I just dropped one in the toilet. Here's, here's, a, here's an overarching point. I'm going to cut you off right there. If they know, Chris, then you know what that means. Why didn't they tell me? Not only why didn't they tell you, but I don't know why your mind didn't make it here first. That means you work with some non-hand-washing sons of bitches. All right? Well, nobody used the toilet except me for like the last... Like, if something... They all knew... They all knew, which means they are some non-hand-washing sons of bitches. And that needs to be the question that you ask yourself now. Hopefully you guys don't share tools. Jesus tap-dancing Christ, folks. This is how we're opening a podcast. It irritated me. I was, I've been irritated all goddamn day. I'd burn that place to the ground and just go find a new place to work. <laughs> because everything well, is yeah, like 10 minutes later, GM came out and, or GM came out and was like, Hey, hey uh, Chris, the water's shut off. Oh, thanks for the email. I know now. Well, if you go in there, it's on you, bro. If you want my, if you want my snap judgment, cl- cleanse it with fire. Just burn it down and start over again. Because that's that's it. Because everybody in there has touched every surface in my mind already. You're all gross. You're all gross. You're all going to hell. This is this is how it starts. Jesus, folks. I mean, I just got out of my own hand washing nightmare. I made it back successfully from the cruise, folks. And it's hilarious because, first of all, I had a great time. First of all, I learned a couple things. One, cruises are fun. And two, despite the fact that they'll allow you to sing, dance, and drink entire bottles of rum in a single afternoon, piracy is somehow frowned upon inside that establishment. (laughs) Forcible taking of things that may or may not belong to you is somehow frowned upon. I don't get it. Either be a boat on the water where everyone's drunk and stealing things, or don't bother. Okay, this is nonsense. Second of all, hand washing. Ridiculously, it's crammed down your throat the entire time you're on the boat. Wash your hands. Wash your hands. There's Purell stations everywhere because you have 3,000 people who are all congregated in the same place. You have to assume that at least two-thirds of them aren't washing their hands. Or at least I do. I'm skeptical of everybody. I hope you took a bath and hand sanitizer. Oh my god, I felt like Frank Reynolds in that episode of Always Sunny. Just everything had to be clean. Everything had to be clean. Folks, thank you so much for joining us tonight. We have a packed show for you. Before we jump right into things, make sure next Thursday and Friday, the the Rock Sports Network annual draft show at Batavia Downs. It's going to be a great time. Okay, we, It's an annual thing we host right there at 34 Rush at Batavia Downs. They have drink specials. They have food specials. You get to watch the draft. But not only do you watch it, but you get to hear analysis from guys like Mario and Paul from Hashtag Sports and Ryan and Icy from over at the Huddle TV show. Local guys who know their shit, have it together. We bring you our takes on what's happening. As We break down the draft for you so that you don't have to listen to I don't know whatever, now that Gruden's not there anymore and Mike Mayock's gone, who knows what Muppets they're going to uh, trot out there. To go oh, yeah, on NFL Network and ESPN. It's going to be brutal. I can only imagine. So they've got a ton of rock, they've got a ton of football-related swag to give away. It's a great time. Make sure you make it out there. Now, Thursday night, night one, huge night for those guys. They're running two cameras. It's going to be great. If you can't make it, make sure you go watch it online. Chris and I will be there on Friday night to do the second nights, around two and three. 
If you can make it down, come have a beer or five with us. It's a great time. And either way, if you can't make the drive out, go check out the video at the Rock Sports Network Facebook page that we have linked in tonight's show description. I just think it's going to be a really good time. And just before we really get into the meat and potatoes of tonight's show, I hate to drag this out, but Chris, we have to do something. Yeah. I need you to reach into that fridge and hand me something. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Kyle from Las Vegas. Kyle from Las Vegas was kind enough to send us some beer, but there is... There was a surprise in this thing. Chris, I want to read, pour, pour yourself a little bit of that, and I want to read to the folks what it is we're about to imbibe. I'm looking at I do can- like the design. Okay. Folks, the beer is called Moontucky Cold Snack. Or Montucky. There's Montucky. a one O. Montucky Cold Snack. First of all, just that, Montucky. When you hear that, this beer sounds like something that would be enjoyed by gentlemen with a mullet. I mean, I just, just, not, I haven't tasted it yet. It has yet to touch my lips. But I'm reading the can, and it declares itself as the official, unofficial beer of Montana. What do Montana, what does Montana and Kentucky have to do with each other? Yeah, they're not even close to each other. But doesn't it roll off the tongue? Hey, Chris, Montucky. Why, don't you, why don't you reach into that cooler and throw me a Montucky cold snack? Yeah, it's better than saying, hey, reach into that cooler and grab me a mad dog. It's hard to say without a drawl. You almost have yeah. to throw a little southern draw. Montucky. Hey, give me some of that Montucky. <laughs> Get me some Montucky cold snack. Montucky cold snack, a blue can with a white horse, 16 ounces of refreshment. Chris, cheers. Yeah, Kyle, thank you. Bottoms up. Smell at least it smells good. All right. Uh, well, hopefully it's as good as uh the Acropolis that we had last week. I'm not gonna lie, this is a super light beer. That is light. It's a very light beer. It almost has a Coors Light taste, except it's like Coors Light's southern cousin. Yeah, like, I don't like... Like, like if you were drinking a Coors Light that was wearing snakeskin boots, that's what this beer tastes like. Like, there's, like, no... I want to say, like, there's no taste to it. It just... It just goes down, and there's there's nothing. How much... But it is cold, and it's very refreshing It's a cold snack. How... Does it say how much... Uh, the alcohol percentage on the can anywhere? I'm looking. I, do, I don't see one, but I'll say this. You know what I do see is that right on the beer, supporting local nonprofits and charities since 2012, 8% of all sales back to local causes. Oh, shit. All right. Well, that's cool. Bozeman, Montana. All right. You know what? Montucky Cold Snack. It's not... I'm not going to lie. I feel I'll a take... little bit like comedian Theo Vaughn. Like, I feel like I'm wearing... I feel like I... I feel like Joe Dirt drinking this beer, but in a good way. That's like an upscale Joe Dirt beer. But I, I, comparing it to to last week, the Acropolis, I'll take the Acropolis over Montucky or Montucky. See, on a football day, I'd take the Montucky because this is easy to drink. It's got a horse on the can, and it's just fun to say Montucky. <laughs> Jesus Christ! Oh, and with that, we let's get right into this thing, Chris. This week's Bills news update. Let's hit it. <laughs> know that there's only one thing that happened this week that's worth talking about, and that is the, the release of the 2019 NFL schedule. I thought you were going to say T.J. Yeldon visit. <laughs> I could. I, I don't give a Frenchman's fuck about that. How about that, Chris? What do you think about <laughs> them apples? Last night, the schedule was released in its entirety for the, for the league as a whole. And now that I've had 24 hours to digest everything, I've got some thoughts on it. 
First of all, let's start with just overarching thoughts in terms of the entire NFL. I want to know, besides the city of Oakland, who did the Raiders piss off? I mean, you think about it. They're one of the year's interesting teams heading into the draft because A, they have a ton of draft capital, and B, because their GM is going to try to answer the question I've been posing for the last decade. If analysts on TV were really that good at their job, wouldn't they be running a football team? Well, Mike Mayock is going to try to bridge that for me. It's So when you think about it, Chris, you think about how interesting they are coming into this draft and all the talent that they might acquire, it seems kind of like a shame that their fans are going to miss out on a ton of it early on in the year. I believe they have the toughest schedule. Their schedule has them playing outside of Oakland against the two best teams in the NFC North, the two best teams in the AFC South, and the Packers, spanning week three to week eight. They don't play a home game for almost seven weeks. That's all one, isn't one of them uh, a London? A quote-unquote home, home game? game that in London. Don't, don't, oh, I'm the home team in London. What? Don't, 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 no one should be declared the home team. And that's a fucking cop-out by the league. I mean, Chris, how pissed would you be if that was the Bills' schedule? Oh, good, we're going to get to see them for a week, and then we don't see them again until there's snow on the ground. That would that would irritate me. I try to look at it as, as if that was the Bills. If that was the Bills, I'd be slightly irritated that I have to go seven weeks with no, no home game, no tailgating. I have to watch it with you on TV. Ugh. <laughs> Ugh. Right? I mean, I, so again, I don't know if this is intentional. I mean, Chris, obviously, this, like, is the league mad at Oakland because they're suing them? Is, is the league mad at the Raiders for putting them in this position? I don't know, but I know this. That early schedule fucking blows. You know what doesn't blow, though? Look at the Falcons. One of the things that we've all come to agree with over the course of, if you know football and if you study it, or if you at least pay attention to what's going on, teams that play indoors hold something of an advantage on offense. If nothing else, there's consistency in the weather. You know what the field conditions are going to be every day, day in, day out. You're playing on turf, right? Mm -hmm. You know what the weather, you don't have to worry about, oh, the wind's going to be harder to pass in. Do we have to change our game plan depending on what's going on around us? You don't have that in, for indoor football teams. I mean, look at the Saints. They're a perfect example of this. So it's interesting to me that the Falcons, who play at the Mercedes-Benz Dome, don't actually play an outdoor game in 2019 until week 11. Everyone on their schedule either has a dome has their own dome or has to go to Atlanta and play until the middle of November. How fucking... I mean, these schedules are made up of mathematical probability. What are the fucking odds of that? I don't know. Maybe the same odds that we don't play anybody off a of bye? I guess. But Jesus Christ. I'll say this. It's, an odd, it's another odd quirk to the schedule that I've noticed. And it's something that bears watching, not only if you're a fan of the NFC South, but also if you like fantasy football. Think about the inherent value of picking offensive players from a team 
that is going to be indoors, week in and week out. Weather will not disrupt their production. That's sort of valuable, isn't it? Yeah, it is if you're going to take Julio Jones. Well, they don't throw to him in the end zone anyway. (laughs) (laughs) And then, I think in one of the biggest stories of the entire year, Cleveland, despite being the mistake on the lake, will be one of the biggest primetime and I think overall viewership draws in 2019, at least for the first eight weeks of the season. Chris, you know how much I hate the Browns. Yeah. My animosity is not lost on you. Oh, yeah. The Monday night game, the 6-3 game, <laughs> the 8 nothing, eight nothing game. The game I drunkenly stormed out of that you had brought your ex-wife to. Oh, yeah, I just that, said, man, no, that I'm was, not sitting through another 6-3 game, and I stormed out of the stadium. Yeah, that was, that was man, when we got to see Manziel. Yeah, they got a ton of primetime games to start, but, you know, like, I, I get them getting all those primetime games because they could be a train wreck. And everybody loves to see a train wreck. Well, this is it. Anybody who says that they don't see why this team absolutely needs to be on primetime TV multiple times throughout the season is either letting their bias cloud their view of the situation or just isn't seeing the forest for the trees. Cleveland is incredibly interesting. First of all, they have a cultivation, a cultivation of egos and talent. Mayfield, Landry. Now they've got OBJ. That's got extreme potential for volatility. You've got a team that spent a decade as one of the biggest losers that all of a sudden, on paper, went from zero to hero. The question is, does it work? I mean, one of my favorite sayings is, you you hear it a lot in hockey. I've heard it a lot since the Tampa Bay Lightning got swept. The, The saying goes, pressure bursts pipes. Considering that this is the first time that the Cleveland Browns in the last decade have had expectations levied on the franchise, can they deliver on those? And if they fail to deliver on the promise that they seem to have on paper right out of the gate, what does that look like as it unravels? You're ta- I mean, it's riveting. You're talking about a team that took these egos, put them in a locker room together, amassed all this talent, and then essentially has an offensive coordinator who's never been an actual head coach at any level of football trying to run the show. That's exactly what I was going to bring up. Freddie Kitchens has never been a head coach or a coordinator for that matter. So can he handle all of these egos? Tell me that that's not interesting to you. Very interesting. Just as an objective football fan. Very interesting, and it's very irritating that one of these primetime games that they got is on Sunday night football. So... And then you look at from inside their own division. That division has been ruled by the Ravens and Steelers for so long that there's a lot of people who are looking forward to a new contender. You know, obviously, if you're a Ravens or Steelers fan, you disregarded the Browns for so long that this still, you're, you're almost in denial of the fact that it could happen. But for people outside, I mean, the Ravens and Steelers games, I'm not going to lie, that used to be much must-watch TV, Chris. Must-watch TV. I remember I went home with a girl. One of the first times in my entire life that I went home with a chick just that I met at the bar. I went back to her place after the game. She must have well, been. After, after the Bills game, we met at a bar watching you know, down on uh, at the old Cozumel. Old Cozumel on Elmwood. And afterwards, 
she lived over on Mariner and she, you know, I dropped my uncle off and I took her back to her place and she was like, oh, you should come upstairs. And I'm like, all right, sweet. This is going well. And then I realized Sunday night football is Steelers Ravens. Chris, I made her watch that game. <laughs> I made her in her own apartment watch that game because it's must watch TV. And at the same time, over the last three or four seasons, they just haven't been that exciting. No, the Steelers and, and, and you, Ravens have both kind of declined in that sense. Yeah, and you don't know if that if it's going to keep declining because there's no Lev Bell, there's no Antonio Brown, Ravens switch quarterbacks. Now they've got a yeah. quarterback who can barely throw to wide receivers. I mean, it's this is the time. Is this? I mean, that's the question. Is it time for the Browns to make that jump to the top of the division? And then, from a roster building perspective, this model is incredibly interesting. People around the league who matter are going to be paying very close attention to this. Or The Browns were organically terrible enough to amass this absurd amount of draft capital and cap space. And think about it, Chris. They made some savvy moves. Hey, you don't want Brock Osweiler anymore? Give us a second-round pick. We have so much cap space because we don't have any players worth signing. We'll eat his $16 million contract and take a second-round pick from you. It's fucking genius. They massaged their way into this place where they all of a sudden had a ton of draft capital and a ton of cap space, and they leveraged it all over two seasons to build what you currently see on paper. Now they've got a young quarterback. They've got star offensive skill. I mean, Njoku, Landry, OBJ. Uh, Nick Chubb. Nick Chubb. Who's the, the the wide receiver Higgins or whoever who got caught smoking pot? Sure, and after week eight, you got Kareem Hunt. And you get Kareem Hunt on the roster. All of a sudden, they're loaded at skill positions, and they've got a defense with more proven talent in the secondary linebacker core and defensive line than any team the Browns have fielded in the last decade. So whether any of this will amount to anything, you can debate that forever. But I'll tell you this. All eyes from not just fans... But at least 20 of the other 31 GMs in the NFL are going to be focused on Cleveland this season. Not just because they're interested to see if there's suddenly someone to be considered a threat or taken seriously as a contender, Chris, but the NFL is one of the biggest copycat leagues that exists. And you know that if this model works and the Browns find a way to be a legit contender by building a team this way... There's going to be five to ten other GMs of some middling franchises out there whose wheels are going to start turning. And they're going to start thinking, you know what? I think I might be able to artificially manufacture that same scenario. Because I think I can do that. Because that's what it takes. You need an ego to be a GM. You have to believe that you have the vision to take a team where it needs to go. And there's going to be some that watch this succeed and think to themselves, I can do that. I mean, it's going to be really interesting to watch the Browns this year, and I hate myself for those words coming out of my mouth. i got to wash it out with bourbon. <laughs> ah, God. And then there's the AFC East. Okay, I've analyzed the schedule of the team. I can't go that in-depth with every friggin' team. I'm, I'm a man, Chris. I have needs, like chicken fingers and hockey and sleep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not a psychopath. Yeah, well, I mean, well, the, I mean, debatable. you start with the Dolphins. I mean, we know that they're going to suck this year and probably next year. So, you know, 
Good for them to, to throw it in for this year. Well, here's the thing. The Dolphins picked the perfect season now that you see what their schedule is. They picked the perfect year to be terrible. Their brass have said a lot this offseason about how you can retool a football roster while also being a competitive team. But, Chris, we just lived that. We were just sold that bill of goods by our GM. And I feel like Maury reading a paternity test when I try to tell Finns fans, that is a lie. That, what your GM just said, is a damn lie. The Finns are not only a bad football team this year, just in terms of talent. I mean, you're starting Ryan Fitzpatrick. Ryan Fitzpatrick! If you, if you are an out-of-work quarterback, or if you're a quarterback who was previously a starter like Blake Bortles or like uh, Ryan Tannehill, who is now rid riding pine... And yet, and yet, Ryan Fitzpatrick is still starting football games in the NFL. You should feel bad about yourself because that dude showed up fat and said that he ate a lot of birthday cake because he has a ton of kids. And he's let himself go, but he doesn't care because teams love him because he can somehow still come out there and sling it better than them. That's pathetic. When you look at the roster, when you look at the roster, and then you look at the schedule. The Finns start their season playing not one, not two, but four consecutive playoff teams from last season. I mean, it's Baltimore, it's New England, it's Dallas, and it's the Chargers. And then they have a week five bye. Chris, they could very likely be heading into their bye week 0-4. And I hope that happens. <laughs> I mean, I don't think, to me, Miami has not had a successful season since Cam Cameron went 1-15. I mean, maybe they nail the draft this year and they have a couple elite players no. that come out of it that you know, just just turn their whole season around. But if not, this, could think, this thing could be over before it even gets started for them. Which brings me to it, something. See, Chris, I'm already getting pissed off. And we haven't even gotten to the point where I'm ready to talk about it yet. Oh. One thing I'll say is this, their GM probably isn't pissed because this is a year the Dolphins want to be bad because they're trying to be bad next year for a quarterback. Tua? Don't do that to me. I'm sick of having to root against Alabama players. I'm tired (laughs) of it. And then you look at the Jets. The Jets might not take off out of the gate either. A lot like the Finns, the Jets are going to have to gel and do it quickly. I mean, think about it. Brand new head coach, brand new offensive scheme. Young quarterback... A group of skill position players who have never played an offense like what Gase is going to try to bring to the table. The Jets have the fifth easiest strength of schedule. But when you look at the 2019 season, things are brutal out of the gate. They have a pair of home games that, I mean, you want to call them a given. They're playing us and they're playing Cleveland. And that's a primetime game. Then they have four straight games against playoff teams from last year. And two of those four games are against New England. They play New England twice in the early going of their schedule. I would say that that's kind of a plus because, you know, or do, they, do they have any – they play New England in September because traditionally New England's not good in September. I think they have one game on the road against New England in September and then they get their home game somewhere in the middle of October. Now you throw in Jacksonville. Jacksonville's a team that wildly underachieved last season, but – could be improved with Nick Foles under center. If the Jets don't get off to a hot start, their season, much like the Dolphins, could 
they could find themselves in a very early hole that's hard to get out of. You know what I mean? You, you, you look at teams, like I'm thinking back to how many teams started 0-5 and made the playoffs. I don't know many. <laughs> I don't know many. You know, teams who started off with two and, you know, two and three, two and four. The probability, it's, it's not good. And then, of course, there's New England. Oh, same old, same old for New England. Here's my shock face, folks. Oh, yeah, I know. Visual joke on the radio. The schedule plays out favorably for those jackasses up in Foxborough. Don't worry. Don't worry. I'm not going to do what everyone thinks I'm going to do. Flip out, man. I'm not going to flip out because, honestly, I'm just... (laughs) I think my... I, I still hate those scumbags. But I think it's run its course, Chris. I mean, I just, I, I'm tired. Well, New England's got the easiest schedule. My white-hot hatred for these guys. They have the e- second easiest schedule in the entire league. And then the schedule just does them even more favors. The two best quarterbacks the Patriots are going to face this season are Big Ben and Patrick Mahomes. And both of those quarterbacks are going to have to go to New England in order to play them. Which is a distinct advantage for the Patriots, who don't even fucking need it. <laughs> this is a level of horseshit that I just I can't. I'm so mad. I'm not mad. I'm so mad that I've, I've just I have to laugh. Well, they have the same opponents as us, except two, that being uh, Mahomes and Houston. Okay. Well, what, what are you trying to say to me right now? Right. You don't know math. Well, what does math have to do with this? I mean, that's how the schedule falls. They play the North, we play the North. They're playing the same schedule as us. Okay, so how do they get a home game against Kansas City again a year after just having That's a home how game the schedule them? works. You play first place in one division, and then you're on the road in the other oh, that you placed with. Oh, nerds. Nerds did this to us. God. Yeah, NFL nerds. This makes me want to be Booger from Revenge of the Nerds. I swear to God. I have (laughs) seen that movie. Oh, shit. Cheers. That's a first. Now, I will say this. It's not all roses, but some of it sucks for me, too. Chris, the Patriots have nine of their 16 games at 4 p.m. or later this year. More than half of their games are going to come in the afternoon. Do you know why that sucks? I, I'm going to preemptively apologize to my wife. Honey, if you're listening to this, I'm fucking sorry. I am sorry. Because whenever I'm at home raging my way through the beer fridge after a Bill's loss, whether it's home or away, that means that there's a real good probability that not only are the Patriots on TV, but that I'm going to be drawn to it like a moth to the bug zapper. Chris, I'm not going to be able to help myself. No. This could be one of the worst seasons of my entire life. Yeah, I, I do not. Because all of our games are at one. So half these, or all of these, you're, we're going to watch at four after we get home from games. It's going to suck. I read somewhere that the Patriots somehow don't have an advantage because they have 13 fewer days of rest than anybody else in the NFL. I don't think that, does, Chris, does that mean anything? Not to me. No, not to me. And folks, unfortunately, you're going to have to deal with a lot more of me on Twitter just ranting because I came home angry from a Bills game and the Patriots were on TV. Great. Wonderful. Life is going to be grand. (laughs) What are we doing here? 
And then I, I think, I don't know whether this last thing means anything or not. So, Chris, you're going to have to help me here as kind of the middle-of-the-road football fan. Every team besides the Patriots has a bye week on or before week six in our division. Everybody. Now, on one hand, the bye week, when you look at what it is, it's a structured week of uh, a week of rest that essentially allows you to, I don't know, freshen yourself up. You take that week, you get some extra treatment in, you get you get a chance to walk away, clear your head, and come back a little bit fresher. So having them fall in the middle of a season, I mean, that seems to make for a more well-rounded schedule and can help like a team that's trying to make a playoff push recenter itself before hitting the final leg of the season, right? I want to say the last couple of years that we've, our schedule has, we have had a mid, mid-season buy somewhere between week seven and 11. I okay. think the last, I want to, I want to say like the last six seasons we've had that. Okay. But you can agree with me that philosophically, Yes. Having that in the middle of your season yeah. seems like a good idea. Yeah, I don't want to have a buy in week, in week four. <laughs> but then on the other hand, if you're a team that's gotten off to a just a rocky start, that early bye week can give you as a team the chance to maybe hit the reset button and try to right the ship before your record is so bad that you're already a long chance, uh, just a long shot to make the playoffs. Before you even really get started. So in that sense, maybe it's a good thing? I I don't know. I just know that everyone in the AFCs besides the Patriots has to take theirs in the first, what, almost third of the season? And that just seems fucking weird to me. Yeah. And then we get to the Bills schedule. The Finally. reason that, The reason that we're all here. If I had a bell, I would ring it. If I was Bill... Bu- if I was... Uh, what's his name? Buffer. Oh, Michael Bruce Buffer. Buffer. Michael Buffer. Bruce Buffer does MMA. Michael Buffer can suck ass. He does well, Michael much. Buffer did WCW for fuck's sake. It's irrelevant. <laughs> He's the man is irrelevant. Yeah, this is what we all everybody wants to hear your take on. The Bills schedule, I've had a chance to kind of soak myself in it for a few days. Just kind of take it all in. Here's what I think. First of all, there's a couple different ways to break this down. We're going to start from the just from a season ticket holder standpoint. As a season ticket holder, the schedule the schedule dictates a lot in terms of not just the game day experience, but tailgate planning, what equipment I buy during the offseason. It dictates how I prepare. So in terms of tailgating, Chris, I don't know that we're ever going to get a better schedule than this. Now, as most of you people know, the last two seasons have shown that September can have some Fucking unbelievably hot games. Chris, the Broncos game. I wore jeans to that. I don't know why or how. (laughs) I was shirtless with a luchador mask on, sweating all over people. I stopped drinking at like 9 a.m. for that game. Well, that's it. I'm a heavy drinker. And I remember the moment. It was about 10.15 in the morning and I was flipping burgers on the grill. And I was trying to drink a beer fresh out of the cooler. And I realized it's too goddamn hot to drink this. Yeah, you just, like, after five minutes, like, the beer is too warm to have. I mean, that's it. So when you're trying, I mean, think about it. The Chargers game was 90 degrees at kickoff. The Broncos game was the hottest game ever at, at Ralph Wilson Stadium in New Era Field. Well, the Bills didn't show up to that Chargers game, which made us able to leave at halftime. Yeah, thank God. <laughs> but what happens is you're out there in the parking lot trying to tailgate, 
and you can't keep anything in your cooler cold for long. Nobody wants to drink. You're just chugging water and trying to stay hydrated and hiding under the shade of the tent to avoid from being cooked alive. Yeah. It's, it's a miserable experience. So I look at the schedule and I see that more than half our home games are from late September. You throw in the bye. That gets us into October and November. Chris, that's fucking football weather. I do like, I do like it from a tailgating perspective of I'm not expecting that Bengals game or the Patriots game in week four to be as hot as Chargers and Broncos from the last two years. And I don't think we'll get to a point where we have to wear our Carhartts and look <laughs> no. for snowstorms. No. So uh, you're looking at you're looking at a good six home games with probably decent weather. Well, that's it. And we still get two winter weather tailgates, which for me, I love it. Chris, I love that shit. I see. I like that we end with the Jets at home because either we're already going to be in the playoffs. Or that will be the game we win and clinch a ten and six spot because that is already a secret bet between you and me. I think we're making the playoffs. You sir are a fucking optimist. Here's what I'll say from a tailgating standpoint: I genuinely enjoy knowing that over the years of throwing these things, I've gotten savvy enough and I've bought enough equipment and I've learned how to prep things that I can throw one hell of a party and I can feed a fucking army, no matter what the weather does. Guys, for the Colts game. I had two friends who were, this was before Chris was a season ticket holder. You did ask me to go, and I was like, no. <laughs> the Colts Blizzard game. I was so pissed off that people bailed on me for it that I said, fuck this, the truck is packed, I'm going to the stadium. And my wife told me, that's probably a mistake, Drew. Don't go do that. I told her she didn't know what she was talking about, and that I had an obligation, and I was going to meet it. I have people who depend on me to throw this tailgate, and I'm going to do that. So by myself in 40 mile an hour winds, yes, the tent, we have a, you know, a 14 by 14 pop-up tent. And yes, multiple, well, actually we have a couple of them, but multiple times that tent got blown across the entire field as I was trying to expand it by myself. But I got that fucker up and I got it pinned down. I got the walls up and heaters going. I got grills hot. I threw a party that sheltered and fed and just, just threw entertainment. For more than 20 people by myself because I'm prepared and I love doing it. That, that, that is part of what drives me as a fan is that morning, that atmosphere, that, hey, I provided this. I, I did this. Chris, I could have run through a brick wall that morning. Okay, You couldn't see the stadium from our lot by the field house. And I, I was ready to run in there like I was William Wallace. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah, I could see that because we were in the thick of things when it came to playoffs. Damn straight. I mean, Chris, when it comes to, for me, like that, that was just reaffirmation in my mind that, you know what? You can do this. You have this tailgating thing on lockdown and I love doing it. It's like, it's, it's, I want, it's secondary to the game itself, but it's important. It's like, for those of you who are Game of Thrones fans, it's like being the mountain. You don't always feel like crushing someone's skull with your bare hands, but it's always satisfying reminding yourself and everybody else around you that you can do it. That's what tailgating is for me. So you give me a couple inclement weather games for me to kind of flex like, hey, I can do this. Ah, come to my tailgate. We got heaters. We got tons of hot food. It's going to be great. No, 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 no. Everyone's going to be fine. I got hand warmers for the kids. You bring everybody. Come on down. It's great. 
That's what I live for, guys. As a tailgater, those are the days that really rev my engine. (laughs) (sighs) That aspect of the season should be fantastic. Now we have to talk about the actual schedule in terms of competition, which I'm not so happy about. Chris, first of all, I don't mind the early part of the schedule. I don't. I don't either. I like like our early part of the schedule. First of all, Patriots Week 4. Love it. Love it. The Patriots are always more vulnerable in the first four weeks of the season. I ran, I have that just kind of floating around in my head, but I, Chris, tell the people what you're looking at right now. Yeah, you have a table, and I mentioned it not too long ago about the Jets playing the Patriots early. They try to test out their, uh, whatever they want, new things they want to add to their offense or defense in September, and that technically comes to bite them because I want to say that. They're around 500 or slightly above 500 in September over the last couple of seasons. But you have a you have a table here of the last seven years. <laughs> I built this. I built this just to satisfy my own curiosity. I charted their record over the last seven years and then ran it for the first four, first four week losses. And then what percentage of their total season losses that represents? I'll tell you what, folks. If they lose in September, that usually ends up being half of their season losses. That's can I, it. Can I add, can 12 and 4, 12 and 4, 12 and 4, 12 and 4, 12 and 4. And they lost two games in September in each of those years. Well, on your table here, it has 18 yeah. to 12. You don't have 11. No. Because we beat them in 11 <laughs> in September. Yes, we did. I wanted to go back to that. So... It's good to get this out of the way early. So you're telling me there's a chance. Yeah! (laughs) I guess so, Chris. I guess so. And so I, I guess with that in mind, then you look at week one. I mean, we talked about how you, you, that's why the Patriots lose early on in the season is because they're still trying to massage their offense and figure out what they have. On the off chance that Adam Gase isn't just some wide-eyed fucking lunatic and actually does have a profound impact on Darnold's development and what the Jets' offense accomplishes, and it truly was just Miami and Ryan Tannehill being painfully mediocre that held him back from success, wouldn't it be great to catch Adam Gase right out of the gate? Right out of the gate while you're still trying to install a new offense, Players who have never really played a full NFL game together are trying to play, and you're going to come out there and just catch them week one. Isn't that preferable to letting them find their footing before you have to play them for the first time? That and you pausing the television because you're, oh, oh wait, look, that's a, that's a meme of Adam Gase. i got to take a picture of it. I can see you doing that week one. <laughs> hey, listen, after a handful of beers, anything is possible. And then you look at what we're dealing with in in the following two weeks. Cincy and the Giants. They're two teams that aren't supposed to be good. First of all, Cincy has a new head coach, an older and not very improved defense, and they really only have a a handful of threats on offense. That's not a team that scares me. Yeah, and I think you can figure out Andy Dalton by now. And Eli's just flat out old. (laughs) That's it. Eli behind an unsettled offensive line without an established number one wide receiver. 
I mean, I'll say this. The draft, I'm going to be watching what the Giants do because if they take a quarterback, okay, now I'm a little hesitant about that game. But if they don't, and their plan is to start Eli in that game, I'm, I, I feel pretty good about our chances. <laughs> I think that if this team gets off to the right start, Chris, 500 out of the gate. That seems feasible amongst this group of games, right? It does. It does. That you know, one of the, th- one of the like I couldn't bring myself to watch any of the schedule release on like ESPN last night because the one thing that irritates me is uh, schedule gets released and then all these analysts are putting out predictions of teams' records when the draft is a week away, as if the draft don't fucking matter at all. Like, you can never, like, oh, yeah, I'll just predict the schedule right now because, yeah, the draft's next week and uh, you can't find an uh, impact player in the draft at all. I'll just, <laughs> that's just irritating to me. I couldn't watch any of it last night. <laughs> I was too busy on Twitter dealing with your Thanksgiving shit. Oh, folks. All right. Let me take a long pull off this. <sighs> it's got that whiskey burn to it. Folks. We have landed on the thing I hate the most about this schedule, and it's the fucking Thanksgiving game. Okay? I really don't think that this is a good idea. First of all, thanks NFL for ruining my family's Thanksgiving. I'm just picturing it in my head now. Okay? My whole family, my wife, maybe my brothers, my you know, my parents, they're all sitting down to a nice you know, dessert. There's pies on the table. Everybody's laughing and joking around. And I am outside on my parents' back deck, shirtless, with a, with, a, with a kitchen chair and a bottle of whiskey, just raging about third down play calling and shitty turnovers. That's what I'm picturing in my head when I think about this game. I, I was going to bring up, how about this? At what time do you usually have Thanksgiving dinner? Because now that we're playing, we're playing at 4 to 30. You might have to adjust from when you usually eat Thanksgiving. Like you might eat Thanksgiving at five o'clock is when you have Thanksgiving. Well, see, You're going to have to adjust. I don't care what anybody else is doing. Yeah. I'm on my own schedule now. I am on my football schedule now, which means I'm going to start drinking when I wake up. <laughs> oh Jesus! See, and I, well, I told you this before we started uh, recording. My thing about this is, you know, for our audience, you guys that listen to, this is going to be the first. Uh, first game away game I have not watched with you since 2015. It's incredible. So now I'm going to be left to my own devices. I'm literally on my own with nobody here to talk me off the ledge except for my poor wife, who at this point knows enough to just let me go. She doesn't even try. It's like trying to reason with a hurricane. It's it, it's not a good idea. Oh yeah, what? Oh, you, well you should because I tweeted it out. Those pictures with your brothers. People, you, you should those, put that into context, okay? Because that could happen. Go to Rock at Rockpile Report on Twitter and take a look at the pictures that Chris sent out. On Christmas Day, my brothers and I got into a knockdown dragout fight. This is just this past year. I'm 33 years old. They're in their mid 20s. A full on brawl, legit brawl. I fish hooked my brother and then put another one in an armbar and then rolled it into a kimura and tried to essentially what is it? It's an MMA-style wrist lock that you're going to break it if he tries to get out of it, and he has no choice but to tap. Yeah, that's a thing that happened. For no reason! For no reason other than you put three of us in the room at the same time. 
Now, take that exact same situation and throw a little bit of football angst on top of it. Bill's football We have angst. the potential for something far more catastrophic to go on at a family event. Thanks, NFL. Thanks for putting that evil on my family. <laughs> Chris, do I blame myself, my brothers, our lack of self-control? Absolutely not. This is the NFL's fault. This is an abomination. Not only that, but you're talking about playing Dallas on the road. Chris, what happened the last time we played Dallas on the road? Here, I pulled up. I already got an open tab on it. <laughs> uh, Sunday, November 13th, 2011. Uh, we lost to Dallas 44-7. to <laughs> Chan Gailey was our head coach. We had just given Ryan Fitzpatrick a huge extension. Exactly. And everybody was crowing about the fact that we just shut out the Redskins. Woo! We're great! Oh, we're flying high. We're five and two. The world is our oyster. Well, looking at the look at the I have I do have if you see we have the box score up here. Uh twenty eight to seven at halftime. And uh A, I do not remember Dave Rayner being our kicker ever. I don't I, even, I, Chris, I think I've just blacked all of this out. Yeah, that I, game, I remember the outcome. I remember nothing about it. I think I drank my way into a blackout during that game. Oh, I'll, I'll, tell, I'll <laughs> fill you in on, on, on that game for me. I was here. in. I didn't live here yet. I was here in Buffalo visiting for the weekend, and I watched this game with uh, my now ex-wife. <laughs> and that game got so out of hand, we ended up making out, and I banged her out for the first time watching this game. Very classy, Chris. Very classy. Well, that's why you put ring on. Idiot. That's why you put rings on whores. Jesus Christ! Well, before Chris slanders anybody else, we got to move on with this podcast. Good Lord! But n- nonetheless, that I'm telling you now, Bills fans, this is a mistake. It is a mistake to be on Thanksgiving. This game is going to become an abomination, and this Thanksgiving is going to go down. This will go down in history for my family. Mark it down. One reason or another, I will be shirtless. It's still on point. I'm calling it now. And then, on the flip side of this, the Bills are playing on Thanksgiving, which is a pretty sizable spotlight. The whole country is going to see us, right? We are one of the few draws. So with that being said, we don't. We are the only team in the NFL to not have a true primetime prime time game. And I've seen a ton of bitching about this subject. But here's a counterpoint. We have been absolutely terrible. Terrible in the last 30 years in primetime. Why are people so upset about this? Chris, let's run down some of the lowlights during my lifetime. As recent, recent events. I mean, I'm not going to go historical because there's listeners here who are far older and far more learned in, yeah, the you don't ways piss of them the, off. in the ways of the Bills being terrible. With that said, in my own experience, primetime has not been kind. We have seen the birth of Captain Checkdown. Okay? Remember that loss to Cleveland? Trent Edwards threw three first quarter interceptions, but he was so, but the Browns were so terrible that they could only score six points off three turnovers. And so it became a game. 
But Edwards spent the rest of the game refusing to throw the ball more than three to four yards downfield. That was it. That, that was the birth of Captain Checkdown. That happened on Monday Night Football. There was the fumble. Leotis McKelvin, who I, 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 I couldn't understand any of his postgame press conference, so I don't know how he felt about it. But he refused to kneel the ball in the end zone and cost us a win in Foxborough. Well, yeah, and when he was getting tackled, like he tried to stay up. Ugh. If you're getting tackled, just go down. Then what about the Thursday night football game against the Browns? Again, Bills versus Browns on primetime TV. It's an oh, abomination. Yeah. There's the EJ Manuel. I'm, I'm telling you now, Chris, Bills and Browns should be forced to play somewhere offshore so as not to hurt anybody in the process. The tale of two knee injuries, the loss to Cleveland, where we started with two legitimate quarterbacks at the time and ended the game with Jeff Toole versus Brandon Whedon. Are you, what? I wonder what Jeff Toole's doing now. Even the announcers were panning it. They were like, well, this is not what the fans paid to see. So Jesus Christ, <laughs> what are we doing here? How did we end up in this place? And then... There's the day that the Bills almost killed my friend Neil Branson. Okay? Sunday night football game. My friend Neil and his father and his brother were season ticket holders. And they tagged along with some other people to go watch the Bills lose 56 to 10 on Sunday night football at the hands of the New England Patriots. They left the stadium at halftime, down 35 to 7. Okay? And uh, honestly, just sat outside. In the freezing cold. Because they couldn't leave. They had no way home. So they they literally sat out there in lawn chairs with a cooler. Braving the elements. The 20-ish degree weather. Okay, No shelter. No heat to be found. And drank the rest of that cooler in frustration. Just in protest to the massacre that was happening inside the stadium. Despite the risk of frostbite or exposure. <laughs> they literally almost took my friend from me. Well, I, I'm not just trying to be a sensationalist, Chris. I'm not. The numbers, when you look at them, are fucking horrible. I was going to just say that, I mean, not to throw gasoline on the fire, but to throw gasoline on the fire, the one you don't have here, A, we just talked about playing Dallas. Dallas on Monday night. <laughs> you left that one out. I saw one of the best fist fights of my entire life <laughs> at that game. Some Some... After after the Bills lost to the lost to the Cowboys on Monday Night Football, I'm leaving the stadium, and a truck loaded down with Cowboys fans comes driving by. There's five guys in here, and the guys hanging out the window waving a to jersey like a flag, like a, like a bullfighter out the window, just going "fuck the Bills, fuck the Bills," and then they had to stop at the red light at the corner by the stadium, and you see a fan just run up and punch that guy in the face. So then they start fighting, and his friends get out of the car thinking they can help, and instead they all just got swarmed. It was like five guys trying to fight 20. It was anarchy. It was one of the craziest. It's the closest thing to a soccer riot I think I've ever seen. Like, that's because it just filled the street, and there weren't enough cops to break it up. I'm like, what the hell is going on here? This is anarchy. Prime time is not our friend, okay? And the numbers bear that out. In, in the Bills' history, we've played 75 primetime games, and we have 30 wins to show for it. That's a, that's a .4 win percentage, Chris. We're a 400 team on primetime TV. On Monday Night Football, it's not much better. 
44 games, 18 wins. And Thursday Night Football, again, we're a 400 team. I mean, this isn't me being a downer. This is history staring us in the face whether we want to see it or not. Yes, there are some... I've been told I've given my manic thoughts to some people who are a little bit more pragmatic than me. And they've reminded me of some things. There are some outside factors at play. Because the Bills haven't been interesting by way of our own ineptitude, Chris, we have often in these primetime games gotten paired up with much better teams than us. And we're usually on the road. Yep. I mean, think about it. Yep. You, you, if you do well in a season, like we went to the playoffs, so the next season, last season, we, got, we were given Monday night against the Patriots because we were in the playoffs. If you do well, you will be given a home primetime game the following season. That's, That's generally how it works. That's fair. Because they, the league says, hey, you did well. Let's reward you. We'll give you something. But the fact remains, Chris, we as a franchise, not just as a team in the last two, three, four years, we as a franchise have been a bag of shit on fire in terms of our performance on the national stage. I would, I would uh, like to see these numbers that you have here. 75 primetime games, 30 wins, 400 wins. I would like to see that. Minus the primetime games that we had from 90 to 94. <laughs> it's probably a lot it's worse. probably a lot worse. Probably a lot worse. And so that just underscores this idea, Chris, that first of all, the NFL should absolutely be hesitant to put us on national TV because we lay an egg every time. But also, if you're a fan, okay, if you're a fan of this team whose goal is the team making the playoffs, like you, Chris, you think that the postseason is within our grasp. 100%. Okay. What good does it do to play a game that we know we have a just terrible track record of, of winning? I mean... It doesn't do us any good. So us not having any true primetime games actually is a blessing in disguise. So everyone needs to stop bitching about it. Okay? That's it. You all need to quit your bitching. I'm not pissed. Chris isn't upset, and neither should you. You just need to knock it off. We are going to switch gears to the meat and potatoes of tonight's show. The reason that most of you are here. The wrap-up to our annual Rockpile Report draft preview series. And we finish, Chris, with the defensive line. Yeah, uh, I believe that's where we're going to go on uh, a week from tonight. Yeah, it's crazy to think, Bills fans, but we're here. Final installment of our annual series. We've had a lot of great conversations with some great analysts over the last month and a half. And tonight, we're going to close things out as we always do with the position that we think is not only the deepest in the upcoming draft, but one that we think that we're most likely to spend some of our high draft capital, the defensive line. Now, when you take a look at the reason why I believe this, let's first break down the roster as it currently stands. Our current cap allocation to the front four, $48.4 million. And when you look at the number of starters we have under contract for that money, I'd say three with a question mark, Chris. Is that fair? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, Jack, Jerry, Trent, question mark, are you healthy? That, that's really it. I mean, if you want to start with the defensive end group, 
Jerry Hughes. Veteran DN. He brings pressure and he's solid against the run, but he's not the biggest or most powerful pass rusher and really kind of thrives when he has better defensive tackle play around him. And what's on, what does he have left for his deal? I think he has a year or two left. Another two years, and he's going to be, uh, what, a 30-something-year-old defensive end? Yeah. Defensive end Shaq Lawson, a guy who was drafted to be a pass rusher or to be an impact player. I mean, we took him at 19 overall. He's a young defensive end nearing, coming into what might be a contract year, depending on how this draft falls and whether the team picks up his option. He's a good edge setter. He's very good against the run. I'll give him that. He's a powerful guy. But he brings you almost nothing in terms of pass rush, in terms of that fast twitch, you know, hey, I'm going to break an offensive tackle, tackle's angles, ankles, or I'm going to take a good angle around the corner and get to the quarterback as he's taking a five-step drop. Lawson's not that guy. But really, he brings you a valuable presence on the edge to occupy tackles and tight ends to free up other blitzers. I'll give him that. But he's not a guy that you're going to open the wallet for and pay a ton of money because guys like him, I don't want to say they're easily replaceable, but they kind of are. Chris, I mean, we can think about the number of decent defensive ends we've had over the years. None of them are overly remarkable. He just seems like another one of those guys. To your point, Trent Murphy, he's a pass rush specialist. He may never, I mean, he was an outside linebacker in a four, in a 3-4 defense. We brought him in to be a pass rusher as a 4-3 defensive end. Torn ACL, right? And he's coming off a torn ACL. He may never regain the upside that he previously had as a starter. He wins with speed more often than he wins with power. And he's only average against the run. I wouldn't say that he's... He's not great. You look at a recent addition to the roster, defensive end Eli Harold. Now, I've seen some places where people are pegging, oh, wow, we signed this guy, and if he pans out, then we can sign him, and he'll replace Shaq Lawson. People seem fundamentally confused as to what this guy is. He's a defensive end by name, but when he was drafted, he was viewed as athletic enough to be a 3-4 outside linebacker. For, for me personally, this guy seems like likely a fit in that Lorenzo Alexander role. You know, it's funny. We have a listener from Britain <laughs> who loves to message us at what, Chris? Like three or four in the morning? This is Terry White. <laughs> talking he about Terry. He about three or four in the morning to, uh, to just, to, to, he's listened to the show and he kind of brings up his opinions and he was the first one to kind of lead me to this. And then I started doing my research, but... This guy may not be the replacement for Shaq Lawson. He may, in fact, be a you know a, a one-year flyer on a guy who might be the future Lorenzo Alexander. He almost seems better suited for an in-the-box linebacker that occasionally blitzes and puts his hand in the dirt kind of role. Then you've got defensive end Eddie Yarbrough. Rotational player at the defensive end position last year, and he added some pressure, but he didn't record any meaningful statistics. He was a great training camp interview for me, and he seems like a really nice guy. And as a as an exclusive rights free agent, there's really, there really wasn't a whole lot he could do. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I think that if if a defensive end was drafted early, a guy like Yarbrough would have a hard time making the roster. Is that fair? All right. Well, you just listed five defensive ends, and 
from as an average fan, from what I gather, Harold and Yarborough are just rotational guys to give a guy a break. And then your three starters you listed, Murphy, often injured, Shaq Lawson. What's his fifth-year option? What are we getting here? And Jerry Hughes, he's old and has one to two years left. So uh, the end seems like something we should take. Okay. Defensive tackle. We have Starla Tulele, or Lodalele, as I like to call him, just to piss some of our listeners off. He's a two-down space eater. That's what he is. He's almost a true nose tackle. You know, he's a zero-technique kind of guy. He's down there to take up bodies. You know, he's going to lean on the offensive line. He's not going to let him get any push. But he's also not going to give any push. He's not going to move the pocket. He, he has no burst to provide pressure in the A-gap, which as a defensive tackle in a 4-3, you need a couple guys who can do that. And he's the, he's the highest paid player on the defensive line. He's making $11 million and giving you nothing in terms of athleticism. Yes, he's a rock. He is in the center of our defensive line, and he is a boulder for offensive linemen to move. But for $11 million, I just feel like I should be getting more for my money. Seems about right. Then you look at the recently re-signed Jordan Phillips. Now, he was a highly touted nose tackle coming out in the 2015 draft and was released by the Dolphins and picked up by the Bills. He's flashed a little bit. I mean, that Dolphins game, he was playing like his hair was on fire. But I understand that. You're playing against a team that just released you. There's some emotion involved. But week in and week out, I didn't see a whole lot from Jordan Phillips. There weren't games where I knew he, you know, you know when he's in the game. I I Well, I was going to say, I noticed him... Not for anything he did on, I mean, he was on the field when he did this, but like during play. But both times that we got into like fisticuffs on the field, post fisticuffs, he was literally at midfield amping the crowd up. That's all he did. And I know I noticed it. Okay. So outside of that, though, he's flashed here and there as a three technique penetrating defensive tackle, but you don't notice him enough for my tastes. And right now, he's the 21st highest paid defensive tackle in the NFL. So this staff seems to be banking on him on this one-year deal they signed him to to improve. Which, hey, if he doesn't, we're not tied to him long-term, but that doesn't help us if he still falls flat in 2019. He graded out as below average in most pro football-focused metrics. I mean, I, I just don't know what to do with this guy. And then there's Harrison Phillips. Maybe, Maybe he... Just needed time. Maybe he needs more training. I don't understand. Sophomore defensive tackle was last year's third-round draft pick. Doesn't seem like he's a very explosive athlete. He's got power at the point of attack, but he's not twitchy. You know, he's not that gap shooter that you... First of all, you saw him flash that a lot in college, but I think some of that was just from the talent around him on that Stanford defensive line. Now you're looking at what he brings to the table. He's obviously a powerful man. I mean, he, he was the, the, what, he led in the bench press at the combine for whatever the fuck that's worth. Yeah, good for you. But with that said, he just didn't make any flashy plays that make you recognize, like, oh, that's a guy. That's a guy we drafted to come in here and be an impact player or leave you comfortable with him being a starter. Absolutely not. And then you look at where his numbers went. He hit that, you know, they talk about college players hitting a wall. Because they're only used to playing 10 to 12 games. 
Sure, he is a prime candidate for that award that last season because he hit that tenth week, eleventh week, and just faded into obscurity for the rest of the season. It was like you could tell his his conditioning wasn't quite there yet, which it's a rookie thing. I get it. I do. But this guy needs a lot of work if he's going to be anything more than a rotational defensive tackle. And then behind them, you've got defensive tackle Kyle Pecco and Robert Thomas and a defensive end named Mike Love. Hello. I've never heard of you before. Yeah, that's it. That's literally all the effort I'm willing to put into describing this group. But I think you get the idea. So you just named three people that we've never heard of. Harrison Phillips, who is... You put invested your draft capital in, and he apparently still needs time to develop. And then you have Jordan Phillips, who we literally picked up during last season, and then an eleven million dollar tackle that plays two downs. Yeah, overpaid. Two downs downs and overpaid. So, in in your right up here, it absolutely seems that we need a defensive end and a defensive tackle. Well, it's got to be one of our top picks this next week. It would make week. too much sense. And that leads me to the draft philosophy portion of this. Aging, expensive, and unproven are three terms that you hate hearing when you're describing any football player. It's even worse when you're using them to depict your defensive line as a whole. Okay, If that's how you're describing an entire unit, you are in fucking trouble. The fact is the Bills have a ton of money allocated to a defensive line that has provided them subpar production at best. Last year, we were 26th in sacks, 16th in rushing yards per game. And then, if you're looking for an honest assessment of where we stand in the defensive line, our top two pass rushers are older and not consistently effective. Our top defensive tackle is a two-down player who can't blitz and is massively overpaid. The players behind them are crapshoots in development, we do not currently have a blue chip, a three technique defensive tackle who you know is going to be a problem for another team week in and week out. And despite the lack of upside that this group seems to have, they are the 11th most expensive defensive line in the NFL. Chris, do, I don't know how much clearer you can make that. Yeah, this is de- definitely needs based on what we've just outlined. And and what's great is that apparently this is a really deep draft. Well, and here's the thing, Chris. If you don't draft those positions and find true impact players, how else are you supposed to improve? When Marcel Darius was traded, Chris and I had a discussion on this podcast about the defensive tackle position, and we broke down the top 10 salaries at those groups and explained how given the job that those guys do, Chris, it's next to impossible for a defensive tackle getting paid $90 million to really provide a a solid return on investment. I mean, we talked about it with players like Charles Clay. Charles Clay was a $9 million tight end who caught one touchdown or no touchdowns all year. He had less than 300 or 400 yards receiving. Yet you're the ninth most expensive tight end in football. That's not acceptable. That's a bad return on investment. Well, if you look at defensive tackles, that's what they are. I mean, Marcel Darius, bad return on investment. But that's by nature of what that job is. There's only two or three or four elite athletes who can... Your J.J. Watts, your uh, Aaron Donalds. 
the guys who can provide that kind of return on investment are few and far between. I mean, the guys getting seven-figure salaries to play defensive tackle just can't bring it to you. Look at it, and Dominican Sue is the best example of this. He is the active leader in career defensive tackle earnings, but only has six career playoff games, and three of them just came in the past season with the Rams. Well, Darius played his way into a contract. Exactly. And then he, once he signed on the dotted line, he mailed it in. Well, yeah, and that's, you can argue that too. Hey, some of these guys, when they get paid, they just don't want to throw it around anymore. I mean, J.J. Watt, it's not his fault. He's been, he's been hurt. Aaron Donald, I don't know what we're going to get out of him. I'm assuming he's going to continue being the impact player that he is. But again, he's making a double, he's making a seven-figure salary to do it now. So that's money being dragged away for a position that ultimately can Aaron Donald win you a game by himself? Maybe? Probably not. No, I don't think he could. And at defensive end, we just saw a few months ago, Khalil Mack got traded from the Raiders to the Bears, and they paid that man. He is getting fucking money. Meanwhile, the Cowboys just signed themselves a $100 million defensive end. And yet, spending alone doesn't seem to be the answer either. I mean, just four of the teams who were top 10 in edge rusher spending finished in the top 10 for sacks last season. Arizona, Minnesota, Chicago, and Denver. And only one of those teams made the playoffs. So that's it, Chris. It should be clear to anybody who's willing to look at the evidence laid out in front of you. Getting to the, getting to the passer in today's NFL and controlling the line of scrimmage is a must. It's a must with the way football's being played today, especially with all the coverage rules. And think about it. Linebackers and defensive backs aren't allowed to get away with a whole lot anymore. The the field is very much slanted to the favor of the offense in terms of what your coverage units can do. Yeah, because you want to have high scoring. More points means better ratings for the NFL. So why wouldn't you do things on the defensive line to help them? To make things harder on opposing offenses. Instead of just staying with what is the status quo and paying a ton of money for mediocrity. I mean, that's it. I, despite the fact that everyone here in Buffalo is screaming for an influx of high-end offensive talent, it seems to me like we have to break this cycle of paying high-end money for low-end production from our defensive line. I mean, Chris, I don't know what else to, I don't know what else to say and I don't know what else this team can do. Right now, we are set up because we have starters. You know, I just outlined. We have a ton of bodies on the defensive line right now. And yet, we don't have anybody who's a legitimate threat to single-handedly blow up a defensive coordinator's game plan or an offensive coordinator's game plan. So, if that's the case, shouldn't this be with a class that is perceived to be fantastic? Isn't this your opportunity to go get that guy? Go get that guy. And even if he's not that guy today, he has room to grow into that role. He doesn't have to be the man right out of the gate. And at the same time, you'd be adding something that your team hasn't had for two or three, four, five years. That's since the days we, when Mario actually Mario Williams actually gave a fuck about football. I can't underscore enough how important I think this is. And we have a real opportunity here in front of us to set ourselves up for success now and in the future it just seems like a no-brainer to me. So as promised, folks, our final analyst of the season, we are really happy to invite to the show for the first Olak. How are you doing, sir? 
Oh, I'm doing well, fellas. How you guys been? Not too bad. Now, I know most of you who are listening to this probably already know who he is, but in case you've been living under a rock, Ben Solak from the Draft Network. He's one of their draft analysts. He does prospect review. He blogs over there at the site about draft topics. Um, he also works with our friend of the show, Mike Kist, over at Bleeding Green Radio and Bleeding Green Nation. I mean, ben, you're kind of like a, in terms of sports writing, you're kind of like Spider-Man. You know, you're like a Peter okay. Parker by day, Spider-Man by night. You know, student by day, draft analyst by night, and in your spare time. How do you balance all that? Because it seems like you're constantly pumping out content. Yeah, I mean, step one is to care less about school than your folks want you to. Uh, <laughs> that's an important part of it. Uh, step two is to be an insomniac, is to, you know, never sleep and struggle to go to sleep when you try to and just end up getting up out of bed and writing some more. And so... It really comes down to the fact that, you know, when you want to do this work well, it requires a time commitment. And, and if you're willing to give it, then I think it pays you back. And so I think that's the long and the short of it. So over at the Draft Network, now I saw in the last couple of weeks you've put out your final big board, um, or at least I think a new iteration, an updated big board. You've had wide receiver talk. Uh, I've seen you critiquing defensive line, which is obviously what we're here to discuss tonight. Well, what else do you have coming up down the pipeline as we get closer to draft day? Yeah, so the contextualized quarterbacking portfolio came out, which is a, a super sweet tool. It's a bunch of, of quarterback charts and data that you pull off the charts. That That's how I evaluate quarterbacks over the course of their season. And so because that's out, there's going to be a lot of, of posts and content based off of that data. So if you have interest in what's a relatively weak quarterback class, you want to know about some of the guys, a lot of those player-specific posts will be coming out. Uh, the consensus positional rankings for the draft network will be coming out as well over the course of this weekend and the week leading up to the draft. So those are the two big pieces of content you could expect from the draft network. And then over at uh, Bleeding Green Radio, you and Mike are always doing stuff. I, I, <laughs> I always go and I take a look at the description of your podcasts, and it's always funny because there's it's the type of thing you read, and it does kind of you almost chuckle as you're reading through. It. You're like, okay, I'll take I'll take some time and listen to this for a few. It's just because it. What do you guys have coming up over there? Yeah, no, and that's that's all kissed, man. That's all kissed. He's he's uh, he's helpful. He's a good guy in that regard. Um, we had the big board fight episode, which is a yearly episode we do, where we basically take our top fifties and yell at each other for about forty minutes. Uh, <laughs> and that came out previously this past week, and that was a good one. And so that's our really our ultimate draft one. Everything else we'll be doing from here on out will be more eagle specific. So we'll be tracking the rumors as we get closer to the draft. Uh, and then there's also there's the ancillary shows that are on uh, Bleeding Green Nation Radio as well, like. Uh, there's the the QB Sco show, which has a lot on the draft eligible quarterbacks again. And so, as of right now, the big board fight is the ultimate draft show you'll find for the Kiss and Solak show. There's always other content on BGN Radio as well, though. Guys, you you heard Michael Kiss on here. He likes to freewheel. He's he he doesn't mind working blue with us when he comes on the show. It's a lot of fun. I would urge you guys to go take go check that out. So the reason that we're all here tonight is to talk about defensive line. We saved this show for last because I firmly believe that this is. When you take a look at where the Bills are and where they stand, <clears throat> this just seems like it makes sense for them to try to invest on the defensive line. Uh, just for all of the reasons I just got done pound, trying to pound into our listeners' heads. So when you take a look at what this upcoming class is, I personally feel like it represents a solid value. But I want to ask you, someone who analyzes the draft intently, how, first of all, how does this defensive line crop Compared to maybe the last two or three years worth of defensive line talent, would you is it fair to say that there's more here than there has been in past years? 
Absolutely. And really what I think, if we look at the top of the class, I think, you know, you've got Quinnen and you've got Bosa in this class, obviously. But if you go back into previous classes, you can find generational talent at edge and at interior defensive line. Guys, you think about like a Josh Allen, you think about a Miles Garrett, you think about, uh, you know, last year's class, if you want to put Bradley Chubb up there, then maybe you can. But regardless, we had some elite talent on the defensive line. What makes this class different, 2019, is the depth. Right, so if we're looking like for me, I've got 14 edges with round one to round three grade. That's absurd. That's unheard of level of depth in this class. I've got 10 edges with round or 10 defensive tackles with round one through round three grades. Again, these are tremendous numbers. Edge wise, we're talking about expecting five guys to go off the board in the first round, if not potentially more. Interior, depending on what you're calling, Rayshon Gary, we're expecting three, maybe four. So we could have close to a third of the draft selections in the first round be defensive linemen. That depth in the early rounds, the amount of players who are starter caliber players is really tremendous. And that's what makes this class uniquely strong as compared to some of the previous ones. You know, that seems to play right. Because, you know, as again, not to reiterate this for my listeners, but for your sake, we, we just got done explaining to our listeners that the when you look at what the Bills have done, they've been active in free agency. And yet defensive tackles, one of the groups that they've kind of neglected. Uh, they haven't really spent any money there, and they don't even have a true impact player at that position. They're also expensive and old on the outside from the edge positions. So really, if there was a draft to try to get younger and even find some guys who might be able to redshirt in a certain sense, this sounds an awful lot like the draft class to do it with. Oh, most definitely. And I think when you look specifically at the Bills' interior with Harrison Phillips and Starlo Tulele, you're in a really good spot to – Bring in a guy who's got a ton of pass rush upside, pass rush ability, and maybe not necessarily as a three-down player just yet in terms of technique, in terms of refinement, and let him pitch only on long and late downs, right? Bring him in situationally when you know he can just tee off and rush and get into a gap. So when I think about, uh, you know, I think the Bills going early for defensive tackle is absolutely on the table, but this is a class with a lot of guys who are good interior penetrators who lack wholeness to their game. Arizona State's Rennell Red, uh, Cincinnati, Cortez Broughton, a player I really like who I think is undervalued. Uh, UCF, Tristan Hill, these are good penetrative players, guys who can really get after the passer, hot motor, they've got some hand usage. But against the run, maybe maybe they uh, they give up a little bit too much. Draymond Jones out of Ohio State, another great example. These guys are day two picks, round two, round three. But because you can have starters in Lotulele and Harrison Phillips out there on first and second down, you only have to play these players on third down. And that gives you the, the two deep that you like. You like to be able to rotate those big guys on the defensive line so they don't get tired by the fourth quarter. I think that's a great setup for the Bills. I mean, nobody loves rotating defensive linemen the way Sean McDermott does. He loves having a true rotation. And you saw it when Kyle Williams was here. And then last year, you saw that kind of it came back to bite us in the ass because Kyle Williams was at the end of the road. He knew it. We all knew it. And he played like it. I mean, we're, I'm not trying to disparage the guy. He's going to be one of the all-time greats. He'll be a ring of honor guy in the stadium in a couple of years. But the fact remains, his performance wasn't stellar. And you saw it because in this 4-3 scheme we're running, you have to – I mean, we just invested – a first-round draft pick and a linebacker, a young, explosive talent with upside. You've got a smaller guy who's showing some ball skills at weak side linebacker and Matt Milano, and you've got aging, kind of middling talent at strong side linebacker. Those are guys that have to be protected. They have to be covered up by – I mean, that's what this scheme is supposed to be. 
And so upgrading that position in particular to me seems like it should be paramount. It's nice to know that there's a lot of talent available there. Now, as far as, I mean, because it's been, just to give you some insight as to the angst of Bills fans right now, people are can, cannibalizing each other on social media. There's arguments happening left and right all over the place between people who are in the know over what makes more sense for the Bills. Obviously, we're a team that needs talent on defense. I mean, to, to go from being a decent defense or a very good defense to an elite defense, you need, you need a couple special players. And at the same time, we've been so devoid of talent on offense that everyone and their mother is screaming for offensive help at the top of the draft, which I completely understand. So now that you've kind of outlined that there's some depth there at the defensive tackle position, what do you see that might be a fit for the Bills if they do decide to go offense in some of these later rounds at the the defensive end group? So if we're going offense later rounds, you're talking like wide receivers? Oh no, I'm saying like if they if they do what will absolutely kill me and draft a tight end, or if they take DJ right. Metcalf, DK Metcalf at the ninth pick, if that's the way we decide to go at the top of the draft, who are some of the defensive ends that might still be there in the second and third round that you think could come into a four three defense like this and still still provide value? Right, I've got you. And it's interesting because right now I think you have a player in Jerry Hughes, who's the primary outside pass rusher for the Bills, who is really the only holdover from the pre-McDermott era. And he doesn't really fit the mold of McDermott edge rushers. More likely, when you talk about McDermott edges, you're talking about bigger guys and guys who can win with power and guys who can win with length. And so there are a couple of names that come to mind right away. The first is Jalen Ferguson out of Louisiana Tech. And this is a player that's very difficult to slot in terms of where he's going to be selected and why. Because Ferguson had a really, really bad pro day uh, for Louisiana Tech. Wasn't invited to the combine because of a, a freshman misdemeanor sort of an incident. And, and you wonder what the athleticism is like in that regard, only obviously having the pro day to look at. But then we're also talking about the career leader in sacks in the NCAA. And so like we've got polar opposites here in terms of athleticism and then production. He falls somewhere in the middle. But this is a player who wins with size and he wins with power. And so he fits the mold. To me, that's that's a, uh, a that's a round three sort of a guy you could look at. Similarly, in that mold, L.J. Collier and Anthony Nelson. We're talking about TCU and Iowa here. These are big edges. These are big, long six, 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 seven guys. Guys who even have the ability to move inside a little bit and rush from the interior if that's something that you want them to do. So less so traditional four three ends and maybe guys who can be sub package players. The last guy that I would bring up, who's a guy that I'm particularly quite interested in as a later round guy who I think will fit their mold and maybe is the development type, is Jalen Jelks out of Oregon. And Jelks is a player who, in the Oregon, in Pac-12 defenses, in the Oregon defense, played a lot of two technique, played a lot of four technique. So just a very little traditional coming off the edge. But this is a player who's 6'5", he's around 250, 255, very linear frame, struggles with leverage at times, struggles to anchor against the run. But if you can teach him how to use his length and his hands a little bit better, he's got really great natural quickness. That's the day three guy I'd be looking at. So uh, Jalen Ferguson, LJ Collier, Anthony Nelson, Jalen Jelks, all fit the mold, all are day two, day three rushers we could be talking about for the Bills. See, now that's really interesting to me because when you take a look at who the Bills have brought in for visits already, you're talking about they've only brought in three true defensive ends. I mean, I know people will say, oh, well, you know, Josh Allen was here. He's more of an outside linebacker. I don't want to call him Khalil Mack type, but he's more of an outside linebacker playing defensive end. Anthony Barr. Okay, exactly. So in that sense, when you look at who can be a hand-in-the-dirt 
you know, th- you know three-point stance defensive end. We've only brought in three for visits, and that's uh, Max Crosby, who seems more like a backup caliber talent in the NFL, and for a guy everybody pretty much agrees is a first-round talent in Montez Sweat. So it's interesting that you name him seeing as he's one of the few defensive ends that we've actually brought in for a visit. Now, we're talking about the class and we're talking about players that are a fit for Buffalo, but just to get a better feel for the field that they might be picking these players out of, just in case there's another value out there people are interested in. First and foremost to me, I look at the top of the board and I see Quinnen Williams, I watched a ton of him because I'm an Alabama fan, and Nick Bosa. What's the book on these guys? Are they legitimately generational talents, or is this a situation of hype over substance? Well, they're generational in the sense that we have generational talent every year. You know what I mean? Like when you talk about the grading scale that's used by a lot of traditional pro evaluators, and I use a similar scale because it's just kind of what I learned. Uh, you grade first round players; they're kind of that uh, eight to seven point range on the scale. But when you have players who grade in above the eight-point scale, we call those like top ten players or blue-chip players. Mm-hmm. And you get two to three of those a year. So like top ten is actually kind of a bad way of describing them. But you get like two or three a year. You know, last year I think I, I had only one in, in no, I had two: Quentin Nelson and Saquon Barkley. The year previous I had only one in Miles Garrett. This year I've got three: it's Quentin, Bosa, and Ed Oliver. Those so you always have blue chip players, you know, two or three per year. So they're not generational in that sense. But the hype is, is, is absolutely correct. These are the players that you bet on to become high-impact players. Bose is the player you bet on to become a ten-digit sack, or a double-digit sack guy from the outside. Quinnen is the guy that you expect to be top five in, in pressure rates and in sack rates for the interior. Ed Oliver is the same way. You expect these guys to come in and by year one be pushing for all-rookie status, by year two be pushing for Pro Bowl status, by year three all pro status. That's who we expect from our blue chip players. And so generational is, is a tricky term, right? Okay. Saquon Barkley is, is a generational talent. Well, he does some generational things, but there's one to two blue chip guys every class. You struggle to call them generational. It, no one really, you know, a generation is what, like 25, 30 years? I can't tell you anybody's <laughs> yeah. generational, you know? That's so they're fair. elite. The hype is there. The word generational is just misused. So now, are these two guys scheme versatile, or is there a certain scheme that you think they fit better than others? Scheme versatile. And, and in order to be a top 10 player, a blue chip player, yeah. you have to be scheme versatile. You have to be scheme agnostic. That way, when, when I'm spending pick one on you, when I'm spending pick two on you, I know that if my organization undergoes change as a general manager, if I have to fire my defensive coordinator and bring in a new guy, I know you're still going to be able to impact the game because I know you can fill a ton of different roles and win in a ton of different ways. Now, you just mentioned a name. Incredibly interesting. <laughs> because Bills fans... Bills fans, if there has been, I mean, we've widely accepted the fact, I mean, I've, I made the mistake of looking at one mock draft. And I'll apologize to you because I know you guys pump out a lot of mocks and I can't bring myself to look at them. I despise it's mock drafts. It's a good call, to be honest. It's a good call. I despise the whole exercise of mock drafts. And I made a mistake of reading one this offseason. And in it, it had the Buffalo Bills landing Quinn and Williams with the ninth pick. By way of two people in the top ten taking linebackers and the Lions drafting TJ Hawkinson directly in front of us. Now, I think that's that's pure fucking insanity. Nobody in their right mind would do that. That GM, if you were the Lions GM, Bob Kelly, and you were, I think it is Bob Kelly, 
and you were to Bob make, Quinn, Bob Quinn, and you were to make that pick, my assumption is is that you would be invited over to the owner's house, taken into a room, and executed like Joe Pesci in Goodfellas. That's how it would end for you, if if that was the pick there at number eight. If you're the Lions, so. Right there, I just said, nope, closing the book again. Sorry I looked at mock drafts. But Ed Oliver seems to be a guy who a lot of people are saying is probably, if the Bills do go D-tackle, is the guy who's an impact player who will be there. Now, you're calling him a blue-chip prospect. Do you think that that status might cause him to be drafted before that? Well, Oliver's, at this point, next to impossible to prognosticate. I mean, we had Lance Zerline who knows, you know, he's got his ear to the ground better than anybody else. Zerline hopped on Twitter the other day, said, there's some draft heat for Ed Oliver, and then proceeded to just log the heck off. And, did, <laughs> like, you know, I was like, Lance, man, <laughs> what does this mean? And no, nothing, you know, total radio silence. Oliver is going oh, – there's three things that are going to happen with Oliver. One, some teams, and I can't tell you how many, are going to completely remove him off their board because they're unwilling to bet on a 280-pound guy from the AAC. Just traditional GMs are not going to bet on the outlier. Two, other teams are going to rank him as a top-five prospect. Other teams are going to rank him as an as a, as a elite prospect, one of the best in this class, because they're willing to operate outside of traditional you know, measurables and traditional benchmarks for the position, and they have schemes in which they think that a smaller three technique can be successful and they can protect him. And then the third thing that will happen is there'll be some teams in the middle who flag his size. It knocks them and locks Oliver lower down their board, but they don't remove him completely. And so we don't know how many teams fall into the three buckets, and we don't know who's falling into the three buckets. But the reality is that not every team is going to like Oliver and be willing to spend a top 10 pick on him. And so accordingly, if you're at a situation where if you're picking at seven for the Jaguars, eight for the Lions, you're picking at five for Tampa Bay, and you have Ed Oliver and then another prospect ranked equally high, and Oliver's flagged for his size, the other prospect isn't, traditional thought, you know, the, the way we, we expect and have seen the NFL to go is you're going to take the other guy because he does not have the red flag of size like Oliver does. So accordingly, we expect, yes, Oliver to fall to the back end of the top 10, if not further down. One of the spots that a lot of people circle for him is nine at Buffalo because we know how much Sean McDermott has valued over his career defensive tackles and being deep at defensive tackle. Obviously, in Carolina, they ran their defense through having a strong defensive tackle rotation. That being said, yeah, I could see the Bills passing on Ed Oliver for a smattering of other players. If those players are ranked similarly, they're not going to have the same red flags. So we expect Oliver to fall, yes, either to the end of the top 10 or perhaps even further out of it if he gets past the Bills. Quinnen, different matter entirely. Quinnen is also a little bit tricky to spot, but Oliver has the red flag aspect to him, and that throws a huge monkey wrench in the projection of his draft stock. Now, you have Ed Oliver listed as your number two player (laughs) on your big board. He's your number two. What is it that makes him special in your mind? Well, yeah, I mean, you can't teach quickness. You you, you can't teach explosiveness. You know, there, there are, we're usually talking about blue chip traits, matched with elite technique and blue chip traits. I mean, Oliver's impossibly quick, fluid, and explosive for the interior position. A lot of that has to do with the fact that he's carrying 20, 25 pounds less than a lot of defensive tackles are. Like, it's important to note, Quinn and Williams went out and put out elite athletic testing at the Combine at 303, not at the 280 that Oliver was at his pro day. And so, you know, we're talking about he's carrying less weight, so you expect him to be a little quicker. That being said, you can see how he leverages uh, first step – explosiveness, lateral quickness, and then fluidity, flexibility throughout the frame to 
frequently to the point of, of, of consistently to the point of predictably pushing the pocket on passing downs. He is regularly compromising the integrity of the depth of the pocket. That's what I want for my three technique. If I can count on my three technique on more third downs than not to cause interior pressure disruption and to affect the, the launch point of the quarterback to help my other rushers by moving the quarterback off his spot and helping my other rushers get home. I mean, that, that, that ability alone is elite. It's going to put Oliver in round one for me. And then he's got fantastic hands. He's solid against the run for his size, wonderful football IQ, great hustle, so on and so forth. Got a lot of other secondary traits that really illustrate to me a bona fide NFL starter and a player I expect to to go and make Pro Bowls throughout a long and storied NFL career. God, see, now you just I'm pitching a half stack over here listening to you talk about this. I if Ed Oliver's the pick, I'm gonna take my shirt off and go sing the shout song in the backyard. Yeah. <laughs> there's gonna be video of that. Trust me, it's happening. So I guess when I think about that then, and I think about the possibility that the Bills may pass on a player like that because they have needs elsewhere. Like you said, it's possible. It's possible they look at a player like Ed Oliver and they say, okay, we like bigger, more physical guys, guys who can also play with a little more power instead of the quick twitch athleticism. So we're going to go wide receiver and just hope that we can get one of these other guys or we're going to, you know, we're going to do some other things. But I could see that. And so I guess outside of that then, I've got some questions because there's some, or they could go in another direction entirely on the defensive line. So with that, there's a couple prospects I want to pick your brain about. There, there's some of these guys here who aren't quite blue chip prospects because there's question marks. You know, with that Oliver, it was his size, but you still like his technique enough that he can win consistently and make impact plays. There's other guys who disappear for stretches of time. Or there's a question of weight. Or there's a question of whether what they did in college can translate to the NFL. So with that, I've got a handful of guys I want to ask you about real quickly just to see if, pick your brain on whether or not you think that these guys who are viewed as day one, day two prospects, are the concerns overblown or do you share the concerns? The first guy right out of the shoots, Rashawn Gary. He was in the news today, as early as this morning. It was I saw it as I was getting in the shower this morning. The guy has apparently been flagged. It's being rumored now because it's lion season, and that's what we do around these parts is we just tell whoppers to try to drop, you know, take the stock of draft prospects that we like. But it's being rumored that based on his medical tests, teams are either removing him from their board or they're knocking him down on their board. But even before that, there was concerns. Concerns about his consistency, concerns about his motor, concerns about... The ability for him, you even alluded to it earlier, that as a defensive end, you may have to kick inside because you're just not athletic enough to win on the edge. What, what's your take on this guy? Yeah, so Gary's a tricky one. Absolutely he is. To me, he grades out as an edge, not an interior player. And when that comes down to his, his, his bend is going to be more valuable on the edge than it is on the interior, and Gary's got a good amount of bend, especially for a guy of his size. That impresses me, and I like his first-step explosiveness, his quickness as well. Technique-wise, he's got a lot of work to get done. He doesn't really know how to take the outside arc just yet. And I do hear the complaints that when he was asked to do it in Michigan, you understand why his technique in that regard is pretty poor. I like Gary. I, I like him for what he is, which to me is like a prospect around 40, not necessarily around one guy, because of the inside-out versatility that he gives you. I think he's, he's got a high floor because of his athleticism and because of his versatility. I just don't know how much year one impact you're getting out of him. I'm not too concerned by the whole medical aspect as well. I think he's going to be all right. You can cut down on his weight if it's too much on his joints. So to me, uh, early round two guy makes a ton of sense. 
Right. See, and that fits kind of you know what we were talking to our listeners about about the way this the way our current roster is constructed. This is the perfect thing. It's almost like us at running back. You know, you've got some older players who you know are going to shoulder the load. They're going to try to see what they have in Shaq Lawson. They're going to obviously run ride Jerry Hughes as far as they can ride him. They're going to throw in Trent uh, Trent Murphy because they're paying him to to be their you know pass rushing specialist. So this is a perfect opportunity to throw a, a, G, a defensive end in there that you can groom, that you can sort of bring along slowly and teach him the game of football, groom him into an impact player. Now, that's really interesting to me. Now, another defensive end, and it's been talked about as high as nine for the Bills or as far back as, hey, if the Bills do manage to manufacture a trade down the board based on the quarterback situation, defensive end Montez Sweat out of Mississippi State. When I look at this guy, I see a player who, I don't know, I, I just, I watch a lot of SEC football, and I I get why people might like him, but I feel like when you look at him, he doesn't look like a traditional 4-3 defensive end. Or at least, to your point, you alluded to it earlier, a Sean McDermott powerful defensive end. Now, what's your take on this guy? Oh, man, I think they're going to like him at nine. I think McDermott's going to think he fits the system uh, for sure. I think that when you see Montez Sweat win, I think he's going to win with length. He's obviously – he doesn't have an explosive first step, but he gains a lot of ground in his first three steps because he's got a wicked stride length, right? He's a huge body in general. And then obviously the athletic testing really thinks – really seems to make you think a little bit, all right, this guy's an NFL caliber athlete for sure. Doesn't show up all the time on tape, but I can I can deal with that and I can develop that. I can make that more and more. So I think he's absolutely in play for nine. He's the guy with the heart. He's been removed from some team's board. You have to figure out if he's going to be a second contract guy, if you're worried about his health long term. But if he passes your medical checks, I mean, production in the SEC, athleticism and film, I think he checks all the major boxes. I expect him to go top 10, if not top Six, I think you know the Giants are a legit spot for him. If he's there at nine, he's going to be in heavy consideration. That's what I would guess. <sighs> See, that kills me though because you're talking about production in the SEC, and yet I've watched guys from school Alabama. We send defensive linemen to the draft all the time, and I watch a lot of them fail. I watch a lot of them fail because some of them are unfortunately products of the talent around them, and that gets them hurt. That that hurts them when they try to transition. Courtney Upshaw is a guy that I think of. You know, he was a second-round draft pick, and everyone was shocked that he fell out of the first round. Now, you're hard-pressed to find anybody who knows who the hell he is. So, it's there's a, there's a dice roll there when you're talking about the SEC, because the SEC tends to focus on defensive lines. Now, here's a question. Sticking with the SEC, and he was a teammate of Montez Sweat's, a guy named Jeffrey Simmons. Now, he was viewed as one of the top defensive tackle prospects in this draft class. And he is the story. If you ever want to tell a kid, hey, stay in school. <laughs> stay in school, and if a, and if you decide to come out and a teen asks you to do private workouts or do things up, no, refuse. Refuse, 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 and live and die by your tape. Because in pre-draft testing, he tears his ACL. And now he's probably going to miss the majority of his, you know, the majority of his rookie season. So... With that said, he was viewed as an impact defensive tackle before that. What does his draft stock look like now? I mean, some people think he's going to sneak in around one because what? that fifth-year option what? is always 
It's always a healthy, it's always a valuable thing to have. Jesus. You have that fifth-year option, man. It's cheaper. It's cheaper in his fifth year if he's a good player. Um, yeah, the torn ACL scares a lot of people, but if you're drafting at the end of the first round, you expect to be drafting there again because you expect to be playing in the playoffs. If you're playing in the playoffs, you don't necessarily need this guy to be healthy early in the season. If he comes on late in the season for you, well, that's a huge boost and a huge boon to your defense. Film-wise, fantastic player. I mean, wonderful hands, great pass rusher, anchors against the run. He can play from the three-tech to the three-tech. He's everything you want in an interior player. I Listen, I'm telling you guys, he's a good player. Uh, and so I would expect to see him go end of round one. If not, he's going to be one of the first picks in round two. He's going to be a Patriot! That's what I was going to say. Son of a bitch! Belichick's going to take him, sit on him for a year. This is... Uh, don't... You're so, what are you doing, Basile? I thought we... I'm telling you what I've got. I'm telling you what I know, man. Ah, <laughs> oh. now another defensive tackle, a guy that I, I I'm interested in because Clemson. Okay, I, I've become very familiar with Clemson as an Alabama fan. <laughs> we've we've gotten used to seeing these guys, and what I saw in that national championship game this year, I wasn't even mad. My wife was shocked. She, we ordered pizza. We sat on the couch. We, I got my. I was probably two or three drinks deep. And the game started, and their defense—they were. It was like an NFL defense playing a collegiate offense. That's what that looked like. They had safeties moving pre-snap. They had, and their offensive. The defensive line was manhandling our offensive line, and that's what won the game. And to a level where my wife is waiting for the inevitable Drew Gear football explosion, and it just didn't come because I was just watching them just overpowered in all facets of the game. Part of that, I look at a guy like Dexter Lawrence. He's a part of that Clemson front that just dominated all season long. One of the questions I have is, you know, Christian Wilkins, you know, he gets suspended, he, you know, but obviously he's a high-profile draft pick, and everybody knows about him. Dexter Lawrence kind of didn't get the same shine. And I'm wondering why. You know, obviously he's he's down on people's draft boards. What's driving that? What what's wrong with Dexter Lawrence that he's not considered one of the top guys? Yeah, well, the simple reality is that we're looking for pass rush in the NFL of 2019. And Lawrence brings. I talked about with Al Oliver being able to compromise pocket integrity. Well, Lawrence doesn't bring much of that because he doesn't really get to a half man relationship and he doesn't really get into gaps. He can compromise pocket depth with a bull rush. But that doesn't have as much value because you're not really going to finish that rush very often into sacks. So he's a guy who can help break the pocket up, but he's going to need other rushers to be successful for that to turn into sacks, turn into pressures, and not just turn into the quarterback managing the pocket or escaping the pocket and creating on the move. And so there's some value with what he gives as a pass rusher, but it's not much. This is more of a traditional zero to one technique, which just isn't being as valued as heavily in the current NFL. That being said, there are teams who like his mold there are guys who like what he we, he brings new england is a team you run up for simmons they like guys in the lawrence mold tampa bay is another team that likes guys in the lawrence mold we expect lawrence to be a round two pick he's he's a functional part of the defense but he's not a high ceiling round one sort of a guy because he doesn't bring much in the pass rush let me ask you a question if you have a guy who's currently doing exactly what you just described except you're paying him 11 and a half million dollars star <laughs> would he make sense for a team like the Buffalo Bills? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to keep it a buck with you. It's not great uh, that, that you know, playing low too lately that much and having Harrison Phillips next to him doesn't make a ton of sense to me. But if it's, if it's what you think you need for your defense to be successful, as long as you allocate resources to the other spots, McDermott's defenses have been good in the past. I think the guy knows what he's talking about. Ugh. 
I just, I cringe at that contract, thinking about what he provides. And then hearing that there's a guy here, Dexter Lawrence, okay, he's proven he can do it against some of the better defenses that college football has to offer. He can be that guy. Except he doesn't cost you $11 million. That's, it's insanity to me that we're paying this. I, I didn't rave about it in the offseason, but now that I'm thinking about it and we're talking about value, that's what the draft is about. It's about setting up your cap so that you can use your salary cap in free agency to put the finishing touches on a team, not to build a team. Ugh. And then there's one guy who I don't know what to do with him. It's a guy out of Florida. He's an defensive ed, outside linebacker. I'm uh, going to butcher his first name, Ja'Kai Polite. I, I don't know. I just watched him play out of Florida. And he's a guy who... He made headlines because he was complaining about some of the questions he was asked. He said he was upset about the way that teams treated him in the pre-draft, the run-up to the draft in the combine. And that uh, he felt like teams were being overly unfair to him, which almost makes him seem like a whiner in my book. Like, listen, yeah, people people were unfair to you in a meeting. Life isn't fair, and football is going to be far harder than that. So you need to get thicker skin. But what is his value in the NFL? Like, what do you see out of this guy? I mean, listen, film is great. Everything else sucks. Don't know what to do with them. Uh, and and health-wise is a concern as well. And so we expect Polite to go at the end of round two, beginning of round three, simply based off the fact that he's a, uh, a strong film guy and obviously an SEC product, won against some really good tackles this year as well. But there will be teams who completely remove him from the board because of the, uh, the attitude stuff you mentioned, the character stuff that you mentioned. Uh, and there's also going to be teams who simply, because he put on bad weight, he doesn't seem to be able to play over 245. Like, four, three teams who need big ends, it's not going to work. So he needs to be an outside linebacker. I don't think he's going to have the opportunity to start early. And if he shapes himself up, maybe he works himself into a starting job. But this pre-draft process was pretty catastrophic for him. <laughs> I mean, honestly, like, I understand, like, when Des Bryant complained that somebody asked him if his mother was a prostitute, I can see being upset about that. I can't. When GMs sit you down and say, hey, I heard you were in trouble with the law. Why don't you explain that to me? If you get upset about that, or if that's all it takes to ruffle your feathers, you're going to have a real hard time in the NFL. I mean, Warren Sapp has said far worse to far more people. (laughs) If that's the type of people that you're going to be exposed to on a day-to-day basis, you're not going to make it in the NFL. And so I guess that's the next thing I want to pick your brain about is, Guys who aren't going to make it. I mean, as every Bills fan out there knows, drafting a defensive lineman early isn't a guaranteed recipe for success. Because if that were the case, then the following list of names I'm going to read wouldn't make everybody listening cringe or just shake their heads by hearing their names. Uh, Eric Flowers. John McCargo. Who we traded up for. Traded up for. I just want to reiterate that. We traded up for a guy named John McCargo. Alex Carrington. Adolphus Washington, Terrell Troop, Terrell Troop, Aaron Maven. Yeah, some bad players. So bad, bad. Some of these play- the Aaron Maven pick almost killed me. Okay, it almost killed me. I was hosting a draft party at my home. There was like 15, 16, 17 people at my house. When we took Maven instead of a Rackpo, I took a kitchen chair outside to the backyard, filled my T-shirt with beers, and just sat out there alone. And nobody could talk to me. I I was, 
and it was awkward for everyone. No one knew what to do. And I sat outside until the sun went down, just drinking myself into a stupor in frustration. And it turns out I was right. Every, every one of those guys I just mentioned had something going on for them that warranted us taking them in the first two, two or three rounds. And none of them made a significant impact. So when you look at this year's class, who are the players that you have flagged as high risk? Whether it's because they're, you know, based on their projection, it just seems it doesn't match up with the tape. You know, they put up stats, but their tape doesn't seem that great. Or because their workouts might have artificially inflated that stock. Yeah, so I think that uh, guys, uh, a couple of the big ends that I mentioned in Ferguson and Collier are players that I'm afraid of. Um, because, you know, a big end is, is, is a cool thing in theory, but it's a dying breed. The ends are really getting smaller in the league. They're not getting uh, bigger. And so if you can't win with off-edge explosiveness, if you can't line up on the outside track and fire with, with quick feet, then you're going to struggle, I think, to stick in the NFL in a long-term starting role because your pass rush upside is limited. And I know I've kind of beat the dead horse, but you really need to make sure uh, you're rushing the passer and you're rushing the passer well in today's league. On the wide receiver side of things, Nikhil Harry is a player who really worries me. Uh, I don't. I, there's bad reports about his work ethic. I don't see a strong player on film in terms of the little details. He just kind of tries to out-athlete everybody he plays, and that's that's mighty concerning to me. And a bit of a similar concern with Miles Sanders, the running back out of Penn State. He's a guy who I think needs time. I'm not sure if the team that drafts him early will give him time because this is a, a, a strong athlete who really wins based off athleticism and needs to learn more about technique. And so... Those are the players that I'm concerned about. Well, I got to tell you, Ben, it's been a lot of fun picking your brain about this class. I mean, I think it, I think that every Bills fan, everyone out there listening to this podcast right now, to a man, has to admit to themselves on some level that regardless of what you think about the offensive side of the football here, you need something. There has to be a spark up front for the Buffalo Bills. There hasn't been one. And for as long as I can remember, I mean, I remember Mario Williams coming in and for those first two or maybe two and a half seasons being a spark plug for this defense up front. You know, the cold front days back when Kyle was playing well and you had Mario coming off the edge and Marcel Darius was in the middle. Since then, I don't know the last time the Bills defensive line had any real jump, any spark, any kind of threat. You know, you can't be a one-man band in the NFL especially in a 4-3 defense. Jerry Hughes cannot carry the load by himself. And I think that everyone has to be able to admit to themselves that this draft, with for as deep and talented as it is, represents a solid opportunity for the Buffalo Bills to better their defense and maybe become one of the elite units in the NFL, if they were to choose wisely here. I firmly think it's going to happen, and I think that they should. Well, Ben, this has all been really great stuff. I very much appreciate you taking time out of your very busy schedule to join us for it. I mean, where can our listeners find you on social media and where can they follow your post-draft work? Because I'm sure there's going to be an absolute onslaught of it. Yep, it's at Benjamin Solak. Solak is S-O-L-A-K. Uh, and all the draft work is always at Draft Network, LLC, thedraftnetwork.com. That's the spot, man. It's hip and happening. You got to go hang by. At Benjamin Solak, S-O-L-A-K. Great work on the defensive line for this uh, upcoming draft. It's next, dude. It's next Thursday. We're done here. No more, dude. 
One more week, and you won't have to hear about any more mocks. Oh Jesus! You bring up you bring up another mock draft, and I'm I might just take one of my thumbs and just turn it. In. Oh Jesus Christ! I'll, I'll we got one. My, I'll poke my own eyes out. There's one week left, and you won't have to hear about them again until next season. Oh no! Then oh. what I'll have to do is listen to pundits talk about who won and lost the draft. Oh, that! Oh my God! Yep. Yeah, let, let's crown somebody a winner before the draft, before the a snap even gets played. That's a good idea. Yeah, and if you don't have your draft plans, again, uh, Batavia Downs, Rock Sports Network. We will be there on the second night, Friday, rounds two and three. Drew will be on the panel. I'll be behind the camera helping out Gary. It's going to be a great time. Guys, you have to come out and see it. Folks, thank you for joining us through every step of this process. We are going to have an extra early edition next week of the Rock Pal Report. Yeah, we're we going to record re- on Monday. We're recording on Monday because we need to get our final draft thoughts. Now that we've had all this information kind of handed down to us by people way smarter than we are, I'm going to take some time. We're going to condense it. We're going to get together. We're going to huddle. And then we're going to bring to you our takeaways. We're going to talk about where the team stands heading into Thursday night. It's going to be a lot of fun. Make sure you... Again, Monday Night Podcast. Make sure you come back for it. Guys, it's been a lot of fun. I've done my share of ranting, so we got to get out of here. I'm Drew Gear. That's Chris Krueger. Huge thank you to Ben Solak. This has been the Rock Pile Report. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.